This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You have a bad day. The cattle don't lie. You call them back down and you really don't mind. Well, it was an especially bad day in the markets yesterday. Today, not looking so peachy, Taylor. But, you know, one of the things I love about Bloomberg is we've got all these amazing people who have their way of looking at the markets, and sometimes they twist the prism a little little bit. And hat tip to Joe Weisenthal, because he tweeted this story out earlier, brought it to our attention, and it was by Ari Shapira. He's managing editor of Equities for Bloomberg, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. And I don't want to spoil too much of this, but basically it's a breakdown of big stocks and some big-name hedge funds who really took a bath and are taking a bath on some of these names. So, Ari, welcome. Tell us how you got this idea. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I think part of it came from some of the news that came out over the past uh, couple weeks uh, about some big-name hedge funds, and not even just big-name, large-size hedge funds that have had to close shop um, recently, whether they wanted to or they had to. Um, $12 billion fund, Highfields Capital. Um, Criterion was a $2 billion fund. Just the other day, we learned that um, Turbion, which is run by Jason Karp, a big name in the industry, had to return a billion dollars. Um, so uh, to me, it's, it's interesting when you know, the confluence of news just kind of comes together and you're, you're just seeing a lot of this uh, kind of come out of nowhere. And then you know, all of a sudden you get to the fact that you know, October comes around and the market starts to really sell off. So I, I'm looking at, you know, um, you know, you've already heard a lot about hedge funds not having exactly a great year, um, some really b- bad performance and shrinking assets. Um, all of a sudden, a bit of a, you know, I would say still a mini meltdown um, when you look at a much longer term chart on the stocks, for sure. Um, but the thing is, when you kind of dive right into it, it's which stocks right. are getting hit the most, um, which are the ones that are really, um, you know, falling out of bed um, versus, say, you know, some of the more defensive or uh, larger cap names that are not say, in the tech space. Um, so, uh, you know, I did a little, uh, you can use the Bloomberg for many different ways and uh, different functions and find, you know, uh, which stocks have been down the most and which ones have, uh, you know, a lot of hedge fund ownership uh, relative to others. And uh, to me, I mean, it, you know, it kind of uh, showed up a lot of names that are, are household names, a, a name like a Roku, um, like an Etsy, a Spotify. Some of these are even recent IPOs. Actually, I think most of the ones that I just mentioned are um, Stitch Fix, Autodesk. Um, these are all uh, tech names. Um, some of them are, you know, kind of straddle that consumer, um, you know, consumer slash tech um, field. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, you look at how much they're down. We're talking, you know, 20%, 17%, 15% within a matter of five, six days. Um, that is not insignificant. Right. Um, th- th- that is a massive amount um, in, in a very, very short time. And I think what's interesting is when we talk about hedge funds, so often we think that it's very complex instruments that are going on and, and complex deals. And really, sometimes at the end of the day, it really is just buying and selling stocks. And a market like this really can push some people over the edge. I wonder, as you did your research, mm-hmm. You know, what is it? Is it margin calls that's that's hurting some of the hedge funds? Is it just the fact that they're down 10 percent? You know, what is sort of driving the reason that these hedge funds are getting caught in the middle of this market sell off? You know, it's a good question. It could be anything from just, you know, bad bets to some of the things, um, 
you mentioned. So it's very tough. The one thing I will say is, um, you know, we know for sure that a lot of the biggest names out there, the, the Fangs, the Facebook, the Apple, I mean, these are very crowded names for a lot of hedge funds. And, uh, you know, uh, if, if you're involved, fine. But if, you know, a, a, as the word hedge is in your name, you should be hedged. And um, some- right. We'll talk about that because like, it, it does feel like hedge fund has mm-hmm. become this sort of catch all term. Sure. We throw it around. Politicians throw it around. But that's but what you're talking about is fundamentally not what they were meant to do. Right. right? I, I think it's case by case, depending on you know, what asset class that um, you know, these hedge funds uh, belong in. I mean, some of them are long, short and strictly you know, very equity based. And if you're getting crushed in a lot of these names right now, these heavy tech names, and say you don't have uh, puts on the spiders or you don't have other shorts out there to help offset this, you're in a lot of trouble right now. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those things where, you know, come to the end of the quarter, it's, 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 it's time to, you know, figure out what, what, what exactly to do and how bad um, of, of a quarter you really had. Talk us quickly through just some of the names you mentioned, like sure. Square, for example, which today, um, just on basic, some headline news is getting hurt. You yep. talked about the fangs in general, sure. just getting having a tough quarter. What specifically were some of the names that you found that are really hurting these You know, it's companies? funny. I, I, was, I was looking at Square earlier today. Some of the other um, stocks that I mentioned were down a lot more. But uh, now, I mean, look, they had news last night. Um, their CFO was a very influential and important person um, in that company is uh, no longer there. And that's clearly hitting the stock today. Um, I, I, I think now, I think you can almost call it um, the poster child for momentum stocks right now. Right. Um, I, if you look at the numbers, it's almost 30% um, in a very you know, short amount of days. Um, that, that is just nothing to sneeze at. Square is a big company. Um, they have a very uh, uh, you know, a big name behind them. And we're talking $30 billion market cap at this point, And they were not $30 billion, you know, several days ago. Um, but again, it, a lot of it is just kind of the, the well-known names, the household names, um, and the ones that have really kind of gone parabolic over the yeah. last year. Uh, they, I mean, really, end of the day, look, a lot of these stocks are still up, um, you know, for, for the past for the year, year and longer. Yeah. But, but, but that being said, people chase these stocks. People crowd into them. Yeah. And uh, when, uh, you know, they start falling apart, there could be panic and people lose a lot of money. Great. Great stuff. Ari Shapira, love talking to you, love reading you uh, every day uh, on the Bloomberg It is the danger zone for sure. Joining us today is Molly Smith. She's our corporate finance reporter for Bloomberg News. Molly, the danger zone for credit. Uh, Clearly, this has been really a theme all year. Uh, High yield has been outperforming. You've had really negative interest rate, zero interest rate policy for the last decade that's fueled really a lot of the lowest rated companies to be able to take on tons of debt. And then on the flip side of that, there's tons of demand because buyers are trying to find yield. So you've spent a year researching this incredible story all about now sort of what happens now that we're seeing some of these markets start to show maybe some cracks Walk us through your process of this story and sort of where we are today in the middle of this yield sell-off. Sure. So yeah, this did, this story started uh, several months ago, earlier this year, that we wanted to really focus on why the lowest rungs of the investment grade universe, so not high yield, specifically looking at the triple B universe of investment grade, why it has grown to be as large as it is. So we zeroed in on the idea that Uh, M&A field growth has really contributed so much to this part of the market. So what we did was compiled 50 of the largest transactions in the corporate market for the last five years. And 
we looked at ratings before and after these transactions of the companies that were then taking on all of the debt to fuel these acquisitions. And we found that on average, ratings have dropped by about one level since a company has taken on a large scale transaction and that their leverage has also increased dramatically. There's so many different ways I could go here. Uh, <laughs> Just how go. much of this you know, can be blamed, for example, on the Fed? They've had to do M&A because they can't grow organically because rates are so low that they've sort of been pushed to just buy other companies. That's the only way to post decent returns. How much of that has been a factor? I mean, we can really say that of many economic cycles, not just this one, that when you get to these later stages, and I'm, I've heard, I'm sure you guys too, about 100 different ways of whatever inning we may possibly be in right now, that when, yeah, you can't grow organically, you're going to buy it instead. And that's exactly what we wanted to do to zero in on why M&A in particular has really been behind this explosive growth in the triple B part of the market, which is now half of investment grade. Well, and Molly, you and I have talked many times over the years about how all this plays into the private equity landscape. Obviously, we saw this market absolutely boom right before the financial crisis uh, as private equity buyers, financial sponsors, as they're known in the trade, you know, just went out and pulled in so much debt for some of the biggest uh, deals of all time. How much does private equity play into this equation as you did your analysis? For the equation, for the companies that we were looking at, these were not um, PE deals. These were, uh, you know, companies uh, just buying um, competitors. But on the PE angle, yeah, exactly. But even like just looking at last month in September, all of those massive PE buyouts that we saw in leverage loan market with Refinitiv, with Axo Noble, with Envision Healthcare. I mean, those were all huge, huge LBO financings. How concerned do we need to be going forward now that rates are starting to rise? I mean, have the rating agencies said for their part they're trying to stay ahead of the curve this time by lowering some of the debt ratings? I know in a way they got caught a little bit behind the curve. I think that's what you, some people are taking that view that they think they are they're taking there are some investors out there who are taking the mindset right now that agencies when they're looking at these kinds of things are maybe you know getting a bit more uncomfortable with how much leverage is on some of these companies S&P just put out a report uh, about a week ago saying that leverage right now is at an all-time high in the corporate market so i think they're they're definitely aware of said things but uh you know when they when they're making their ratings you know there are a number of factors that go into a rating and leverage not just being one of them. Molly Smith, corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg. You know, Taylor, we often take time uh, during the course of the show to say, what's the most read? What's the most emailed story? Right. This story yeah. is the single most read in the last eight hours and the most emailed. That often Because uh, that does everyone not likes often. bonds. Everyone likes bonds. Well, mm-hmm. also, it's an amazing headline. A $1 trillion powder keg. I mean, come right. on, that's catnip. And on a, on a serious note, when you take a look here at the leverage ratios, which I'm going to have to go back and check my map, but I think it's debt to equity. And when you look at some of these leverage ratios that are over two, two and a half times, and you're looking at a four times leverage ratio, your eyes start to get a little right. nervous. Yeah. Getting so much All right, one of our favorite stories in Business Week this week. In fact, I think, tease alert to our weekend show, Taylor Riggs, I believe you chose this as your must-read. Am I remembering that correctly? You are, because we've talked a lot about robo-advising, but also just low fees and what that's done to the industry. And you've had Vanguard and Fidelity. And, and, you know, I'm 
excited about this interview, Jason, because in some ways it's felt like a race to the bottom of who can cut fees the fastest. Um, But what are the implications of that for the industry? I also want to dig into what new newfangled investors, younger folks like yourself, Taylor, how they're approaching pesky millennials. John Stein is the CEO and co-founder of Betterment, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. John, great to be with you. Thanks for uh, making your way over. Thanks for having me. I'm so flattered to be your must read. (laughs) Yeah, no, because it was a great story. I thought so, too. So give us a little bit of the origin story here, because you have an interesting background. Just briefly tell us how Betterment came about. So the industry has long disregarded customers. And I saw this firsthand as I was working for some of the largest banks and brokers in the world. I got to consult and talk to the CEOs of all these big institutions. And I would ask them about, you know, what's your customer philosophy, your customer focus? And very often, you know, they're smart people, well-intentioned, but they wouldn't be thinking about developing really around what customers wanted. It was just more of the same old product sales. And I thought, Technology is allowing us to really reshape financial services around what customers need. We have goals. We have lives. We need help with reaching those goals and like not just another mutual fund or whatever. And so Betterment comes along and one of the clear uh, visions that you have is serving a new type of investor. And, you know, I joke about pesky millennials like Taylor, but, you know, you are catering to a different type of investor. And one of the things that strikes me as I'm looking at my Bloomberg terminal here and watching another down day in the market is this is a new generation of investor, one that may not have dealt with a down market before. So take us in the mind of that customer uh, who you are serving. Our customers come to us because they want advice. And I I think it's crazy that before Betterment, there wasn't a great way for everyone to have financial advice. You know, it was like we designed this financial system that made no sense to the average person where it was like designing a healthcare system where you could have any drug you want, as much as you want, just come and take it. But there's no doctors. That's what our financial system is like. And so, of course, like, you know, the, just like in the pharma industry, if you had that, like all these product salespeople started pushing stocks and pushing mutual funds and pushing ETFs and getting you to buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. And all of that information overload paralyzes people and confuses people and means that they don't want to invest. If instead you just say, hey, it's for the long term. We got it for you. We're taking care of it. You're in good hands. You're on track. People can invest and do the right thing. They just need the right kind of advice and guidance. So I think the thing that really caught my eye was you announced two mutual funds with no management fees recently. As we know, you have to make money. Where are those fees hidden? If I'm not paying a management fee, where else are they showing up? So I think you're referring to the uh, Fidelity announcement. And we saw that. And I had the same reaction as you, which is where where are, are they making it up? It's like when the airlines drop their fees and it looks great until you realize they're paying, you know, you're paying for it in the baggage charges or, right. like, you know, to get the extra leg room. They make it up in other ways. We don't manufacture our own funds. That's one of the things that differentiates Betterment from all the incumbents is uh, we just recommend the best funds for you. And we don't have any revenue relationships or anything like that from the mutual fund providers. So we can do exactly what's best for our customers. So help us understand betterment in the context of a much more competitive over the last couple of years silicon valley driven sofi wealthfront all these guys coming in uh how do you differentiate and where does this go from here especially as clearly the big bulge bracket banks are starting to notice this movement as well yeah, we've got a lot of people coming at us. And as I said in the in the interview for the article, I don't think our vision is 
probably as unique as it once was. When we started, we set, we set a standard and we said customers ought to be the, the center of this. And yeah, there's lots of people coming after that. But none of them really have the customer at the core in their DNA. None of them are actually doing everything they can to make the most of customers' money. They're doing what they can to make the most off of their customers, but not necessarily to help their customers make the most. You announced as well that you've raised some money from venture capitalists. I wonder who's investing in you. Uh, what types of firms are really seeing the future growth in companies like the one that you're involved in? We've been lucky along the way to have great long-term investors, folks like Bessemer and Menlo Ventures and uh, Chinevic most, most recently, who have led rounds for us because they share our vision that we're really reshaping financial services. And it is a long-term play. I mean, they, we've said from the beginning, you're going to have to be patient. Right. The average you know, financial company takes a lot longer than, say, the average consumer or ad tech company to get to scale. John Stein, you are the CEO and co-founder of Betterment, a familiar name to people who listen to any podcast, I feel like, anywhere. I feel like you guys are ubiquitous uh, in that regard. A joke made uh, in the article. It's in Bloomberg Business Week this week. It's Taylor Riggs's most read. We're so glad you stopped by to tell us a little about what's going on. Uh, please come back and bring us up to date. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. I'm Jason Kelly alongside Taylor Riggs. Very exciting day once again uh, in the markets. Barry James is president and portfolio manager of James Advantage Funds uh, based out in Ohio. And specifically, he told me Alpha Ohio Seriously, the best location I've ever heard uh, for an investment firm overseeing about $5.5 billion. Lucky enough for us that he is here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Barry, great to be with you. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be with you, Jason. So it's a heck of a market right now, uh, to say the least. What do you make of the last two days as you look across your portfolio? Well, as we look across our portfolio, um, stocks are going down and it's regardless of where you are, they're going down. So uh, this is normal uh, when, the, when the market gets hit like this. Uh, you can't expect that you're going to have some magic bullet, and we don't advise anyone to do that. Um, the other part of it is we expect that this is part of a, a rotation in the market. Um, we've had these big names, uh, you know, the, the FANG stocks, the Facebook, the Amazons, and the like, have run. And, uh, the, uh, you know, the Internet stuff was up 28% through the third quarter. And uh, you've had value stocks up about 4%. So um, this would be a normal start of a sea change, as it were, in, in what is likely to, to work in the market. So interesting when we talk about rotations, because I've heard a lot recently of value and growth, um, a lot of cyclical versus more defensive. And then there's the rotation trade from equities into bond yields, into bonds. And as yields have been rising over the past few weeks, I've started to ask people, when do yields become attractive enough that the money starts to go into bonds and out of equities? And I don't know if you use the dividend yield to, to measure that versus the bond yield. When do you start to see that really start to 
maybe explain what's going on in the equity markets? I, I think it already started when the T-bill rate went above the dividend yield on the S&P. It wasn't announced, <laughs> and it, now it's becoming more apparent. Uh, but you have a, a major shift in terms of uh, people retiring, and they want to get more defensive, and now they can get paid at least something for it. And uh, I think that, you know, that side, and then we start to see the volatility in the market, people are, are going to be taking a, a closer look at that. There's still some fear about the bond market because we've kind of broken through some levels that people weren't expecting. But nonetheless, I think we're already in that territory. So, Barry, let's talk about a couple of the names that uh, that you like. ConocoPhillips is one. Obviously, the energy, the broad energy play is an interesting one uh, in this market right now. Tell us about that one. Sure. Um, when we look at Conoco, it, it kind of meets the criteria in, in our funds like the Golden Rainbow. Um, we try to find relatively inexpensive companies that are good earnings and uh, been in a good upward rising pattern. Um, and it, it, so it meets those criteria. On the other hand, when you look at Conoco, it does a lot of exploration and the prices of oil edging higher, as we've seen this year, is very, very good for them. They've gotten out of the um, the things that are not very competitive. They've, they've focused on the growth areas and um, they've gotten their debt down and they've got buybacks of shares so there's a lot of positives there and and if we do get this pullback as we're seeing today it might be a good opportunity to pick up some Another stock that you like um, is Steel Dynamics. We've talked a lot about the materials in the auto sector recently, which got really hit as some of that rotation trade that you were mentioning came into effect. What do you like about Steel Dynamics, especially in a world that we live in that's so global, globalization really hitting us that, you know, some of the steel tariffs come into mind? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, almost all their business is done in the United States. So they're not affected Mm -hmm. from that sense, Mm -hmm. but they are benefited by the tariffs on folks bringing steel into the, into the country. And so um, I think, you know, just from that political side of things, they, they've got an advantage there. But uh, again, they're, they're a good producer. And I think, um, you know, as we've come to some resolution between uh, Mexico and Canada, I think that's going to be very beneficial for them as well. So, Barry, we're on the eve of earnings season starting up tomorrow morning. We'll hear from J.P. Morgan. I believe that's one of your uh, bigger holdings. What are you expecting to hear from them and from the rest of the financials? And how much of a bellwether should we consider that going forward? That's a great question, uh, Jason. Uh, they're probably going to have decent earnings. Um, they may be uh, adjusted is, is one of the things I think they'll try to do, uh, especially with the, the rates being where they are. When you have a narrow yield curve, the difference between short and long-term interest rates uh, narrows. That's not very good for banking business because yeah. uh, they make it on the spread, as it were. So they may be trying to dampen expectations going forward. And if that's the case, I don't think the market will like that. Uh, but I, I think their earnings are going to be just, just fine. As we broaden out as well and just look to earnings season in general, some of the concerns I've started to hear are margins and a little bit of pressure from the input cost inflation that we've been seeing. Uh, Perhaps some analysts saying that margins have peaked, right? Best days are behind us. What are your thoughts as you're a stock picker, fundamental analyst, you know, drilling down to some of these individual companies? When you look at margins, how much of a concern is that for you as we enter Q4? 
Uh, that's always a concern. Um, one of the things that we look at along that line is the difference between the producer price index and the consumer price index. And when you see uh, one definitely going above the other, it means that they can pass on the cost or they can't pass on the cost. And right now they're not able to pass on the cost. Mm -hmm. So that would have an overall impact on, on margins going forward. So, um, you know, the other side of it is they've been buying back shares at a, such a tremendous pace right. that it does help their earnings mm -hmm. uh, by, a, by a wide margin. Uh, we, we don't have that right now in the earnings season because they, they don't do the buyback. So that is probably another pressure on the, on the market that right. could reverse itself after a period of time. And we'll have to get you back because he mentioned CPI and we didn't even get to I discuss know. the CPI lot, numbers this A lot morning. more to talk about next time. Barry, thanks so much for stopping by. It's Barry, Barry James, President and Portfolio Manager for James Advantage Funds, uh, based in Ohio, but here with us with myself and Taylor Riggs in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio today. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.